we come this morning to Psalm 24. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this trilogy of, of Psalms uh, within our series over the summer in the Psalms from Psalm 22 to 24 that all sort of fit together and all make most sense and are understood most clearly when we see them as being about Jesus himself. And when we come to this Psalm, it's an uncomfortable Psalm in some ways, or I don't know if it does feel uncomfortable, but it perhaps ought to, and perhaps I'll show you in a few moments that it, that it will be. I wonder if you've come across a song ever that just doesn't feel right somehow, whether it just feels like the rhythm just, just isn't quite there, it's not quite in sync, or whether maybe somebody's just not quite in tune somewhere, or there's something about the vocal performance, or even just something about the lyrics themselves that just don't seem to quite fit right. Uh, 2020 seemed to be a very difficult year for celebrities. You know, how could they possibly manage to get attention and stay relevant to us? Uh, but for one person in particular, Wes Scantlin, uh, that wasn't much of a problem, actually, after his performance of the Nirvana song About a Girl went viral uh, for being just a bit off. And it went viral as much as anything for some of his facial expressions. And uh, I hope that Jacob might be able to... Um, supply you with a short sort of sampling of, uh, of this rendition. I'll spare you the sort of complete three minutes uh, plus of it, but uh, it'll be well worth a few minutes sort of this afternoon. If you're feeling a bit down, it will make you feel better. If you thought you couldn't sing, it turns out sometimes professionals can't either. There's something about it that just doesn't quite feel right, does there? And there it's the vocal performance. But here in this song, there's something about it that just doesn't quite feel right. Something that just kind of jars about it. And it why it doesn't quite sit right for us is that it exposes the difference between the world and the gospel. It's this that jars with us. Because one of the recurrent songs of the world, surely, is you can do it. No matter what it is, you can do it. No matter what it is, you're up to it. You can do it. There's nothing that you can't do. Anything that you set your mind to, you can. But this psalm's refrain is, who can? See, the world believes that nothing is beyond me. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is impossible. And so this psalm jars. 
It's a gut punch that tells me there's one thing, there's the most important thing that I can't presume to take. Look with me there at this psalm. Look at these first two verses here. We see the realm of the king. When I used to uh, work in debt management, one of the things I would, used to have to uh, help our sort of service users with is, is with managing all of their debts, getting uh, repayment arrangements into place, and sometimes speaking with those creditors and trying to find a more kind of reasonable arrangement. But, uh, you know, one of the harder bits was having to deal with bailiffs, or I think in Scotland you call them sheriffs, uh, which sounds very sort of country and Western. Uh, but, you know, one of the things, one of the hardest phone calls, you know, would be those phone calls to people oh, I'm trying to deal with this bailiff you know can you possibly help me out I remember one client calling saying oh look I'm having uh, these real problems with this bailiff he says you know look it's okay at the minute you know he sat on the sofa uh, I've made him a cup of tea he's, he's calmed down now actually he's he's quite nice he's quite friendly say so, oh right okay when he came in your house now you've let him in the first thing I would have told you if you'd called me before he came was don't let him in but do you remember him walking around and just pointing at some of your stuff so oh yeah yeah he went around doing that making a list how did you know that <laughs> yeah um what the bailiff has done is pointed out all the things that he's now gonna take to to cover the debt and he'll have said them to you and set a price value wouldn't he he comes and lays claim to what is now his. Well, right at the beginning of this psalm, this is what God himself is doing. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. But actually in the original language, what, what, where it starts with in the, in the Hebrew is Yahweh's is. The Lord's is. His name is upon everything. Even from the first word here, the whole earth and everything within it is his. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof or another way of putting it is that all that fills it everything that you see and everything that you don't even see is his the world and even those who dwell therein everything upon the earth the earth itself and everybody who lives upon it are his he's king over the whole world both the place and the people and see, we see this complete otherness of God. He's completely different to us in his right and in his ability to call shotgun on everything. Yahweh's is. Why? Why can he do this? Well, verse 2 tells us, for he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers because he has made it. It's his. See, the land isn't just somehow sort of arbitrarily, uh, randomly floating over the seas. It is instead terra firma. It's ground raised from up within the depths of the waters. It's a land that he has formed himself. Yahweh is king over all, who has the authority over all, whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not. Who is the realm of this king? Now the psalmist pause, pauses to ask us the main question of this psalm. Who can ascend the hill? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? You know, in folk tales, um, this sort of theme is often used, isn't it? Of, of the impossible task 
and the character of unique destiny. And it's often actually that the character of the unique destiny who can fulfill the impossible task is someone that you wouldn't think. Someone who you might have been tempted to write off. In the old tale, whoever could take the sword from the stone was to be the true king. And you find throughout the course of the story that it's not really about the effort. It's not about the physical strength. It's not about your sort of family uh, privilege and lineage, but about a destiny given to you. Or in the old tale, whoever could fit the slipper was the one who the prince would marry. And again, you find that all of the things that might have ruled somebody out of being sort of marriage material suddenly don't matter at all. And here we have a similar kind of challenge. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the question that dominates this song. And who shall stand in this holy place? The place that's set apart for God, not open to the public. Who can scale God's mountain? Who can rest in his presence? There have been many who've tried to scale Mount Everest. And fewer have succeeded than have ever set out on that. And literally, at one point at least, in the process of exploring and understanding Everest, the dead bodies lay on the mountain as a warning to not take lightly something that you are not well equipped or prepared for. And yet, there are stories of many who tried and failed. In 1934, probably one of the worst stories of a failure of scaling Everest, Maurice Wilson undertook a solo climb of Everest. His plan, and it sounds absurd now, but nonetheless, his plan was to fly solo to Tibet, to crash land on the upper slopes, and then to walk the remaining distance to the summit. A solo flight across the world was itself pretty unthinkable, even for a very skilled pilot. And a solo climb of Everest was at the time completely unthinkable for any mountaineer. What's even more remarkable is that Wilson had no prior experience, either as a pilot or as a mountaineer. Sometimes in life, you don't know enough to even know how much you don't know. Sometimes the scale of the task to ascend God's hill is so underestimated in just the same way. We simply don't know enough to know how much we don't know. But this hill is not hard to climb because of its height. Everest is hard to climb because of its height. This is not a hill that's hard to climb because of height, but because of whose it is. In the imagery that the psalmist is using here, in his location, David, this, this hill literally is a hill. It's either the mountain just to the west outside of Jerusalem or the Temple Mount itself. Both things are... way neither could in any sense be viewed as a mountain they are literally hills to give you some perspective mount everest is over twenty-nine thousand feet high the hill just to the west of jerusalem if it's that is slightly bigger but it's two and a half thousand feet high the temple mount is only two thousand four hundred and thirty foot it's not about the scale but it's about the symbolism of the hill. 
The symbolism of the hill is the place of God's presence. The psalmist is asking who is possibly able to climb to be in God's presence. And so now he gives us three characteristics of the one who would be able to ascend the hill. Look at those there in verse four. Three traits of the one who actually will be able to ascend the hill. Firstly, verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. I guess the way that we could summarize that is someone who's innocent. Clean hands, pure heart. Clean hands, clean actions, and pure intentions. Heart. Someone who is innocent. Secondly, the one who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. And perhaps we could summarize that as saying it's the one who's committed. The one who's not somehow sort of flirting around the edges with other hopes, with other gods, not quite putting all in on God, but the one who is fully committed, the one who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, the one who's innocent, the one who's committed, and thirdly, the one who doesn't swear deceitfully. Maybe the way we might put it is, you know, the one who keeps promises, the one who isn't a sort of chameleon, they'll say one thing to one person, another to another, whatever they think they have to say in any given circumstance to be approved. The one who doesn't promise what they can't deliver. The one who is true-faced. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. Swear deceitfully. Three characteristics for the one who can ascend the hill. Innocent, committed, fully and true-faced. Is that you? Is that really you and me? Can we really say that we're innocent? We're fully committed all the time? That we're completely true-faced? And yet, how great would the world be if we were? That's why, by the way, that making disciples, you can make disciples, Jesus's mission that he lives out and that he passes on is a serious answer to the significant problems of the world. Because if people looked like that, those, those great problems begin to disappear. How great would the world be if only we were? But now the psalmist gives us two incentives to ascending this hill. Why should we want to climb it? What's appealing about it? Well, look at verse 5 there with me. The, the one who ascends receives the blessing from the Lord. Those who ascend are those who are God's people and as such receive his blessing. And that they have righteousness from the God of their salvation. Those marked by these qualities are made right before God. This section concludes by telling us, verse 6 here, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That's what those who can ascend the hill are like. But are we like that? I think we know the answer. You know, in any good uh, 80s movie, uh, before the sort of final great challenge for the protagonist, there's a good montage scene. And the montage is supposed to help you sort of see how, you know, the character is at least getting closer to being capable of triumphing. 
So if you watch the movie Rocky, you get the sort of montage of him punching meat in a freezer and chasing chickens around a coop. And somehow this is going to help him to win the heavyweight championship of the world. Or if you watch The Karate Kid, you'll watch a bunch of kids winding each other at best with some very light choreographed moves whilst their sort of pseudo fathers watch on from the sidelines. Well, Paul gives us something of a montage here, but it's a montage that does the opposite. You know, if the movie one wants to help you see, actually, do you know what? Maybe they just have a chance after all. Paul wants to tell you, no, if you thought you had a chance going into this, let me show you how you don't. Let me show you how thoroughly incapable you are. He gives us this montage in, in Romans chapter three here, and it's significant because he uses a collection of clips from the Psalms to put this together. So it's something that the psalmist obviously has in mind himself anyway. Paul writes Romans chapter 3 here. All, both Jews and, and Greeks, are under sin. We could put it for modern language that both the religious, both the church and those who are irreligious and, and no experience of church are under sin as it is written. And here's his montage collected from various different places throughout the Psalms. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Such are those who seek after God. But here it says, no one seeks. That is what those who could ascend would look like. But nobody does. Nobody seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. And look at this triumphant return. Everybody loves uh, a comeback story, don't they, I, I think? Or if you don't, then I don't know, this feels strange. Uh, everybody loves the idea of a comeback story, the feeling of that triumphant return. Uh, the Tokyo Olympics have brought up a, a couple of significant ones for us, haven't they? I mean, there's the one example of uh, Simone Biles uh, withdrawing uh, mental health sort of strain. Uh, only to sort of days later return and win an individual medal uh, herself. And, and even in the meantime, her replacement doing such a great job, uh, having herself had her bags packed, ready to go home. It's a wonderful story for the both of them, really, of a sort of triumphant return, seemingly sort of on, on the brink of going home empty-handed, here coming back with medals for their country. Everybody loves a triumphant return, and here is the triumphant return of all returns. This psalm here, I don't know if you notice it, just as we are reading through it there, that it's, it feels a bit like a kind of a call and a response thing. It may well be that this psalm was used in that way as a sort of piece of liturgy, a piece of, uh, uh, of art that was sort of leading and, and guiding people's hearts in a time of worship. And the two priests would, would read this out together. And now we see that actually this sort of uh, bit that we've got here, it isn't a disruption to the question, who shall ascend, but it's an answer to it. It feels as if it's kind of going on a tangent. But actually, it's answering the very question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Lift up your heads, O gates, verse 7, which are, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The King can ascend the hill. The King comes forward to answer the call. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And it seems as though nobody can answer the call but for the return of the King. 
We'll read of a similar thing in Revelation. Who can possibly open the scroll? Everybody's despondent because nobody can before the Lamb steps forward. The king answers the call, so we're not left feeling hopeless. Not only does he come forward, though, look at this, but the doors swing wide open for him. He's the one who's known, he's the one who has that authority to enter. He's the one that's been being waited for. They've been waiting for his return and arrival. So now the question is asked, I think, for us. (laughs) Who is this king of glory? The king is the one who can come in, but who is the king who can come in? He's the one who is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. This is a king known for strength, known for power, known for the ability to triumph. And maybe it's worth pausing and asking, you know, perhaps that sounds somewhat aggressive and militaristic in 2021 in the UK, in a place in which we're maybe not so comfortable with some of that language and some of those themes and ideas. But I wonder how you might feel if you were an oppressed people. I don't think that those in countries facing oppression, facing rampant corruption, abuse and violence and civil war, would be so sensitive. I think that where we sat in their shoes this morning, we might well be thinking, this is exactly what we need. I think perhaps of Syria, a country completely decimated by conflict. I think of Hong Kong, where people are either trying to fight for freedom in a seemingly unwinnable kind of conflict, or fleeing for their life. Think of Belarus, in which a political opponent will be put to death. Or Mexico, in which an ongoing drug war has wreaked havoc for many millions of people. Or the Democratic Republic of Congo, that's known almost 50 years of near-constant conflicts and uprisings. In the West, we sit here in our free time, in our comfort, and we have this tendency to catastrophize the world we live in. And we think that life in the UK is so awful because we're so blinded by our privilege. We live in a time in the UK that is better than any other recorded time in history. With all the problems it has, I'm not saying it's perfect, it's far from it, but with all of those, We live in the best time there has ever been to live. We are, relatively speaking, even those of us who are less well off, more affluent than any other generations of people. And yet, we sit here and we catastrophize our country. We forget that there are some people living in real suffering still. And we forget that the way that we see the world is not the way that everybody else sees it. There are great swathes of the globe that have very different views. But we forget it. Because we tend to only really listen to ourselves or people like us. I think the idea here of a righteous, faithful, just, warrior, defender king feels very different in some other parts of the world. Maybe that's harder for us to get a hold of. But for some of the world, it isn't at all. I think that feels like salvation to hear that finally, here is this righteous, just defender who will come and free us. 
He is strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. And so again, it is repeated, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And as low as we may have felt, now we're being lifted up as we look to our returning warrior king. We've seen the realm of the king. We've had the question asked, who can ascend the hill? And the answer's pretty challenging, depressing. But now we've seen this glorious return of the king. And finally, now we see this king revealed. Because the psalm ends by asking us, again, that question, who is this king of glory? Verse 10. Who is this king that comes in triumph before his people? Who can ascend into God's presence? Is it David? Well, it might be that this great warrior king is David. David's renowned as this great military leader. He has a jingle that goes with it. Saul kills his thousands, David kills his tens of thousands. He's beloved as a king, even for his significant failures at one point. He's led them to great victories and to great freedom. It may well be that this psalm as a whole is, is written in the context of David's uh, a particular victory of his in which he brings back the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant has, has been in foreign land and the significance of that being that symbolically God's presence was said to reside on earth especially in that place in the middle of the Ark between the angels so symbolically, for some time, God's presence has not been with his people. And now, David has brought back the ark. And there's this great celebration, you can read of it in 2 Samuel 6 or 1 Chronicles 15. The great joyous celebration of the people as they come celebrating through the street, processing it through as they bring it back to its place. And maybe this is the context of it. And David is this king, and this is what's being thought of. This great moment that's not just about national freedom, but about this national spiritual renewal as well. This king who has saved his people from their enemies, but also brought the presence of God back to them. So is it him? No. All the good that David does, it's not talking about David. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Again, it uses that military language. The Lord of hosts normally means the hosts, the armies. The Lord of hosts, he's the king of glory. It's God who is this triumphant king. It's Jesus. You know, we saw earlier that you can't ascend the hill. But there's one who can. And there's one who did. Jesus is our fulfilment here of this picture of the victorious king. And there's these two themes about him, isn't there? That there's the king who is able to approach God, and there's the king who frees his people to go with him. He's the king who's able to approach God, and does so to set us right. Let me read for you here from Hebrews chapter 9. Indeed, under law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things uh, themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, 
which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Every uh, day the priests would go into the temple, would offer sacrifices for people, recognizing that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, that somebody has to pay the penalty for the uh, egregiousness of sin against God, that is saying that God is something that he is not, that is saying that he is not good as he has said he is, that he's not right, that all that he does isn't perfect, and that there's something better outside of him. And so every time something has to be sacrificed in your place in order to set you right, but only the priests could enter in. And they could only enter in if they were shedding that blood to do so. Simply not safe to venture in without that. And now it's telling us that Jesus has not entered the temple to do this. He's not entered the temple to do this one time. And he's not done so just with an animal at his side, but he's offered himself. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. He climbs the hill as the one who is pure, the one who is 100% committed, who is completely faithful, completely truthful in who he is. He's the one who offers himself up as an offering to cleanse our impurity, to cleanse our unfaithfulness, to cleanse our deceit. He climbs the hill to Golgotha. He bears a cross upon his back and is stretched out and nails driven to his hands upon the tree to cover for you so that he could set you free. Because secondly, he's also the king who frees his people to go with him. Listen to these couple of verses from Colossians chapter 2 here. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Everything that would have once kept you away from God has now been put away. No one has a claim on you anymore. There's no past shame that can now suddenly pull you down at the last minute. And this isn't for the idealised version of you. This isn't for the out-out version of you. You know, that one where you've had that long run-up, where you've got all dressed up and all fixed up, you're looking your finest. You're tempted to think, well, yeah, I guess I could sort of understand Jesus saving me for the, the sort of perfected, idealised version of me, because that me maybe sort of is good enough. I mean, by the way, the bad news is worse than you thought. It's not. Jesus doesn't just love the ready-for-market you, the one where you, the gold version where you, you fixed everything up, you think that you've got yourself together. It's better than that. 
Jesus loves the better you. He loves the test version of you with all the glitches, with all the unexplained crashes and the unidentified error notices. He loves you as you are. Jesus may have seemed to have died a shameful death and defeat, but all is not quite as it appears. Jesus may have exited stage left, promptly, but there's a victorious return awaiting where he'll be proud. The psalmist offers this song up for you as much as he does for himself to ground you in hope in a moment of trial. Who knows what exact moment it is that David's in in trial, but he experiences many of them. Or he's literally on the run from the reigning king with all the power in his little world at that moment. So we return to our question as we close. There's been the hook that's held this song together. Who shall ascend the hill? In one sense, no one. No human being can actually claim the moral purity to be able to climb the hill. And yet, there was one who climbed the hill for you, carrying a cross, hung outside the city limits, for you to come home. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his presence? Because of the one who could and did, you can.